the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Good afternoon and welcome to Woods and Waters. I gotta turn it down. Hello. Woke myself up. (laughs) Oh, welcome to Woods and Waters, South Carolina. My name is Roger Metz and you're listening to 94.5 WGTK, The Answer in Greenville, South Carolina. On a huge, huge, Paul and I were looking at, uh, at, uh, station signals here, sitting around waiting for the show came on and, but we got, we've got a, I'm, I'm continually amazed at the strength of this signal. How about you, Paul? It's, it's big. No doubt. You about over your, um, your pneumonia there, dude? Yeah, the, uh, pneumonia, I think's over. It's just, I, about 75% voice, as you can tell, I'm still struggling. <laughs> Uh, it's a grind. It is. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, uh, you hear this and I, and I, and I run into people who hear this show and I'm thinking, how in the world do you hear it? But, uh, it, it's got a reach. If you got friends as far as Athens, Georgia to Charlotte and up above Asheville all the way down to Columbia, you can tune in live and listen to, uh oh. A hundred thousand watts does cover a lot of space, <laughs> no doubt. I was uh, in here one day, and they were telling me that because of the atmospheric bounce, they picked it up in Houston, Texas, for a couple of days. <laughs> that, um, that was Craig Debo. That That's quite surprising. <laughs> yeah, it is. But uh, anyway, welcome to the show. It is a beautiful day outside. I hope if you're stuck at home, if you're working a day, and you got you've got access to a window or a door, I hope you got it open. This is this is the Chamber of Commerce South Carolina Day, right here. Just absolutely gorgeous weather. If you are, if you know anybody down at the Marine Corps Air Show, Air Station Beaufort Air Show, they are having a ball down there. It's 75 degrees, southwest winds at 10 miles an hour. Just picture perfect. South, southeast 10. I'm sorry. Tomorrow, if you if you if you didn't know about the air show, uh, which headlines the Blue Angels, the Geico Sky Typers, uh, SoCom Paracommandos, um, Class of 45, Jim Tobel's. Corsair, uh, Scooter Yokes, P51 Mustang. Tomorrow's temperature is 84, uh, southwest 11. UV index 10 of 10, and you're out there on that tarmac. It's hot, so be prepared for the sun. But goodness gracious, what a beautiful weekend to be out and doing something. We um, got some things we're going to do in the, this segment, the next one. Then uh, Patrick Walters is actually in Texas. Uh, getting ready to fish the fifth stop on the Elite Tour. and But I had a chance to go down to Lake Moultrie or Santee and fish with him a week or so ago. And since he was getting ready for the tournament today, I, I didn't want to bother him. So he, we talked uh, earlier this week and recorded, and that's going to play at the bottom of the hour. Patch, great guy. I've known him for, I don't know, five years now uh, since he was fishing collegiately. And, man, he is having a great year on the elite schedule, along with Brandon Cobb, who won Lake Hartwell. Uh, I think Patrick's average finish 11th. So he's he's really having a good time. Kind of overwhelmed by all the attention that, that being on the elite series brings with it. 
and uh, he'll talk a little bit about that, but it's a, uh, it's a good one. So we're going to do that. And, but that, that third, uh, that third segment's going to run a long time. So it'll be a quick end of the show probably, uh, for after the ads in that fourth segment. I will not be here next week. My daughter's graduating college. So I will be dutifully doing the dad thing down at Charleston Southern University next Saturday. And we got, we got a good show. We'll have a good one for you next Saturday. Went to, uh, if you don't know, Monday was Earth Day. And the Department of Natural Resources cut the ribbon on the long-awaited observation tower on Sassafras Mountain. It is open now, elevation 3,563 feet. It is the highest point in South Carolina. And I believe it's been like a seven-year seven year program or a project to get this up. But their, their press release... From Director Alvin Taylor, the highest point in the state is a geographical landmark that every South Carolinian, young and old, should have the opportunity to see and enjoy. And it's pretty much a 365-degree view from the top of that mountain. There's one, if you kind of look back a little bit, there's some trees on the, kind of the spine of the mountain running towards the, let me see if I can, towards the east that'll block a little bit, but everything else is 300, uh, so, so 280 degrees. We'll say 290 degrees. A round trip, round visibility around you. Um, if you want to go, and tomorrow morning or any morning or even I can't wait for some for some sunset pictures over the mountains would be just going to be incredible. But to reach the Sassafras Tower, which is in northern Pickens County, you go from the t- town of Pickens, go 15.8 miles north on US 178 to Rocky Bottom. Turn right on F. Van Clayton Memorial Highway, go 4.7 miles to the end of the road. The gravel parking area is on the left. And then there's just a short um, concrete and, and asphalt road that runs up to the top. And the tower sits 11 feet above the highest point of the mountain. The top of the tower is 44 feet in diameter. It's got a big old uh, compass in there so you can know which direction you're facing. Uh, there's a mobility-impaired trail and ramp that allows access for people of all abilities. Bathrooms are in place beside the parking lot. On a clear day from the top of the tower, a visitor can see 30 to 50 miles into the states of North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. So, and here it goes. In the fall of 2010, a group of interested interested organizations gathered at the Pickens County Museum to discuss the possibility of constructing this observation tower. And there's a ton of partners in this thing, too. And I've got, I, I recorded pretty much the whole grand opening. It was like 43 minutes. So I'm, I'm going to pick through and Paul's in there shaking his head like it was. No, I didn't video it. I just took my little handheld voice recorder and stuck it on the tripod to do your thing. Uh, <laughs> uh, some of the partners in this whole thing, Duke Energy was a big one because they had to sell the land because that's Duke land, the Harry Hampton Memorial Wildlife Fund, Pickens County, the Felburn Foundation, South Carolina Heritage Trust. And, and private. one of the coolest things about being up there was you had a lot of retired people. And I'm not going to call them old because the closer I get there, I'm, I'll probably never retire. But I will get to the age they're at. But the stones they had donated, so they were all gathering. Oh, there's my stone, and there's my stone, and that's for the this hike. And I've completed this much of the Palmetto Trail or the Foothills Trail or the you know it was it was really that was probably some of the coolest up there things that to see were those people who have been in this 
and who are I mean and getting up there just makes you want to set out because the foothills the uh, the foothills trail and, and the Palmetto trail is, is right there so you can jump on it and go and that's pretty cool makes you want to just strap on a backpack and hit the road Jack so anyway that was that was between the the fishing with Patrick and and going up there for that I've had two stellar weeks and they could not have picked better weather up there either. It was kind of warmish, probably in the upper 70s, low 80s, but just a crystal clear day. Got a bunch. But if you're if you're on woods on Facebook, Woods and Water South Carolina, I've got a bunch of pictures from the fishing trip from Patrick and I took. Just a really cool place down there, and I'll get the pictures from Sassafras Mountain up too. Uh, hopefully this week, if I have time. Let's see. Uh, we'll start. We'll no, we're not going to start. Yeah, we'll start it. The calendar of events, we'll start it on this side and carry it over to the next side. Uh, fishing rodeos. Fishing rodeos are still on the calendar. May the 4th, Blue Hole Recreation Area in Abbeville County. <clears throat> May 4th, Marlboro County Fishing Rodeo in Marlboro County. May 4th, Star Fort Pond down in Greenwood County. Uh, May 4th, Horry County Rodeo at Horry County. And let's see, you got one at Barnwell County. You've got one Cross State Park in Spartanburg. That's in conjunction with the National Wild Turkey Federation, the Spartanburg chapter. And then uh, the city of Hardyville in Jasper County is having one. And then the Burton Wells Park in Beaufort County is all having. Those are all May the 4th. So Abbeville County, Marlboro, Greenwood, Horry, Barnwell, Spartanburg, and Jasper County and Beaufort County, you're all having fishing rodeos on May the 4th. Go online, Department of Natural Resources, Aquatic Education, and then click the little link for fishing rodeos. They do ask you to register online, and there's a little register tab right there, and it doesn't look like any of them are full. So get out and go fishing. That's the start of it. We'll be back with more counter events on the other side of the break. Welcome back to Woods and Butter, South Carolina. And I was mistaken. The uh, the fishing rodeo on May the 4th. At Croft State Park, that's a DNR one. The next weekend, which would be the 11th, come on, computer, help me out here, is the National Wild Turkey Federation, the Spartanburg chapter of the National Wild Turkey Federation, is holding their own youth fishing rodeo at Chapman's Farm Pond uh, in Spartanburg, South Carolina, South Cannons Campground Road. So if you're interested in either one of those in Spartanburg over the next two Saturdays, you can go to one on the 4th and one on the 11th. And I'm on their Facebook page. I'm sure if you went to the National Wild Turkey Federation to events, and I may check that out in a minute, you would find that uh, that it's listed there, too. Speaking of such, if you know someone who is mobility impaired, we'll, we'll call it, I went to a turkey hunt down at Savannah River site that was part of the National Wild Turkey Federation's Rolling Sportsman's Program. And not everyone was in a wheelchair, confined to a wheelchair. There were cancer survivors there. There were uh, veterans there. And they are having another event at Savannah River site for anyone who fishes and who is in that category of, you know, I don't know what category you put it in. My niece is in a wheelchair, and I don't consider her handicapped much she would she's a lot more independent than i was probably at her age but um 
get a hold of the National Wild Turkey Federation because on uh, May the 18th, they are having a Roland Sportsman fishing tournament at Savannah Riverside. Not on Par Pond this time, but on the other lake, which I think is 1,900 or 2,000 acres. If you remember last year when I went down for the tournament on Par Pond, it was a two-fish tournament. You know what the weight on those two fish were that won that tournament? It was over 17 pounds. So that tells you what kind of bass are in these ponds. And these ponds only get fished once a year. Par will get fished once a year. I guess par will be the fall tournament this year. And this other, the other, I'm not remembering the other, the name of the other one. I got a flyer in my car. But if you know someone who is you know, mobility impaired, not of, I guess, veterans with, you know, PTSD, suffering, or, or someone you know that's cancer survivor. Yeah, I think you have to join the sportsman, the Rolling Sportsman's Fund or the membership, but, uh, you can get access to some really cool things. And the, and these people are deservedly so. It should be one to get in and, and get to fish some of these places. So that, that's, that's something that if you want to put that out there to someone you might know, then uh, please go ahead and do that. And that's courtesy of Tal Mims. Who is, uh, who's kind of the ramrod of this down at Savannah Riverside. He works for the U.S. Forest Service and is really in charge of their feral hog program down there. Uh, but, but the Department of Energy, the U.S. Forest Service realize the, just the expanse natural resources that, that are available down there. And if you've ever gone down and done, done the quote unquote bomb plant deer hunt, I mean, you've been on it. You know what kind of games down there. So they do the turkey hunts. They do the deer hunts in the fall. And then they do these fishing tournaments a couple times for, um, for the, those people. And it's just really cool. So thanks, Tal. And he's inviting me back down to shoot some more pictures and I'll have those. I, I've got a, a gallery up now of, uh, of the pictures from the uh, turkey hunt. So you can check those out. May 9th, the, the get out more tour with backpacker magazine is coming back to the local hiker in Spartanburg. Uh, got a little flyer on them. Come on May the 9th to Squatch and Learn with Backpacker Magazine. Get out more tour. That's a, Mr. Probst was on with us last year talking about all the things you can do, uh, out there, some of the things they promote, the, um, the leave no trace philosophy. So get over to the local hiker. Let them know you want to come and be a part of that evening with the Backpacker Magazine. Haven't covered this at all on this show. But Triple Tree Aerodrome, I don't know if any of you know that we have a, we have a gym down below Woodruff known as Triple Tree Aerodrome. It's got a 7,000 foot grass runway that is manicured like the green on a golf course. It is, um, it's the brainchild of Mr. Pat Hartness and his family, sons, and they have a, an educational center down there. They bring in young pilots. They have young pilots fly in. They have uh, bring schools out there. Uh, they are home base to a P-51 Mustang. <laughs> and I know the cost in that thing, and they actually have a, a, a full, fully functioning second engine, second Merlin engine for that P-51. Beautiful airplane. I think it spent four years or six years restoring that thing. And, um, I remember I, I deer hunted down that area a couple of years ago. I remember when they, you, the T6 was flying around all the time because they were training all the guys to fly the P51 on the T6. But anyway, uh, 
for you, for anybody interested in model airplanes, on May the 11th, they've got Joe Nall week. And then Triple Tree has got good RV hookups. They got campsites. They got, you know, you can get meals there because they'll bring in food trucks and they cook and they've got a tower. And, but, uh, for you RC people that maybe are interested in it, uh, Joe Nall week. And I don't know who Joe Nall is, but, and I, I'm ashamed to say that, but, uh, this is the 37th annual Joe Nall week. May 11th through the 18th, and they'll have people from all over the country and probably some foreign countries to boot <clears throat> for this RC event. Uh, tickets, you can go to tripletreeairdrome.com and find out more about this, but this is, uh, I can't wait for the fall fly-in. <laughs> and, and they teased a little bit the other day. They had uh, Old Crow, another P-51 Mustang, was in down there the first of the week, just flew in for a visit to visit the, the P-51 they've got, I got, and they were talking about doing a Mustang fly-in. Yeah, go ahead. I'll be there. <laughs> but I can't wait for the fall one. So anyway, that's it. Uh, Palmetto Kids Fishing Camps, Myrtle Beach and Brunswick County. From Cricket Cove Marina in Little River, South Carolina, fishing summer camps run from June the 12th through August the 17th. Four days of fishing and learning timeless skills. Uh, with Captain Smiley, and he's a charter captain down there. For more information, www.palmettokidsfishingcamps.com. That's another. Well, we we are just we have some great summer camps here in South Carolina. All right, turkey hunters, and that's the end. Of, and I, I meant to say this, and you heard the ad play during the break, but. The calendar events is always brought to you by Visit Anderson Green Pond Landing and Event Center, who right now are hosting the weigh-in for the final event on the Palmetto Boat Center High School Tour of the Year. So they're uh, they got kids down there, about 400 kids out fishing Lake Harville today in that event. They've got the weigh-ins going on down there right now. The Department of Natural Resources wants turkey hunters to participate in a online survey. And I'm going to go to the site while I'm reading this. South Carolina Department of Natural Resources Big Game Program is interested in better understanding experiences, techniques, and factors for successful wild turkey hunters in South Carolina. Uh, let me see if this is... Nope, must be over here on the other. Let's go back and look at news and media. There's a big picture of the South. Uh, yeah, there's a turkey hunter survey. Okay. Let's see. So you register for it. I guess, I guess actually you register for it and they'll send you a, that's it. They send you a brochure or a, a little flyer. So if you hunt turkeys in South Carolina and would like to help and participate in periodic online surveys, please fill out the information below to register. This information helps us learn more about hunters' opinions and makes more informed management recommendations and decisions. And if you've kept up with it, if you were listening a week ago, we had a great call on the turkeys. Uh, we've had turkey, a three year turkey survey in South Carolina. And, uh, you know, everybody has their little world of experience and we got to bring those worlds of experiences together and agree what's best for the turkeys. Cause in the end, if we don't take care of the natural resources. We don't have turkey hunters. Uh, by signing in below, your email address will be included in a list or receive a survey link that you can access and complete on your computer, tablet, or smartphone. So there it is. It would often help me if I read this stuff or I brought it in here cold. The first survey link will be emailed out shortly after the close of turkey season this spring. Other surveys may occur in the future as information is needed. If you signed up and participated last year and your email address has not changed, you do not need to sign up again. 
you are on the distribution list and will receive a turkey survey link via email. That's from DNR. Then another piece of DNR, and this is always that you, you beat this one up every year because people don't know or don't understand. It, that fawn you find in the woods behind your house, it, it's not lost. Okay. If a deer found a if a deer fawn is found alone in the woods, leave it there. Its mother has not abandoned it. She is probably nearby. In on she's removing a fawn from the forest is also illegal because the animal is being taken outside the legal season for taking deer, which is the hunting season. Many people who come upon a solitary spotted fawn in the woods or along a roadway mistakenly assume the animal has been deserted by its mother and want to take the apparently helpless creature home to care for it. Young fawns like this have not been abandoned and are still in the care of a doe. The, and there's a bunch of reasons for it. The apparently helpless deer fawns are born during April, May, and June in South Carolina. will begin daily movements with their mothers in about three or four weeks. Human handling and disturbance of fawns can cause a doe to shy away or even desert her offspring. Also, a bleeding response by the fawn can summon nearby predators. This is part of nature's plan for a doe deer to leave her fawn or fawns alone for the first few weeks of life. The reason for this unusual maternal action is that the fawn at this age is better protected away from the doe. The presence of the doe nearby would attract predators because the doe lacks the protective coloration of the fawn, and the older and larger doe has a much stronger odor. A fawn that appears abandoned is merely awaiting a visit from his mother. A doe, after period, brief periods of feeding and grooming her fawn, will spend much of her day feeding and resting, somewhat removed from her young. The fawn ordinarily stays bedded down as if sleeping, but will occasionally move short distances to new bedding areas. Each spring and summer, DNR gets many cone calls from people who have discovered these lost deer. Young fawns are without a doubt cute and cuddly, but if taken into captivity, they grow into semi-tame adult deer that can quite become quite dangerous. So, leave the deer alone. It's okay. And I tell you, it's, it's tough because I've seen them in the wild before, and they are cute, and you want to go over and, you know, no, leave them alone. It's a wild animal. Nature, mom is taking care of it exactly like she's supposed to. And, um, but yeah, I had one get up. He was bedded down. He, he got up and came over and sniffed my hand and licked my finger. And it was all I could do not to touch it. It's like a puppy dog. You want to reach out and touch it. So anyway, leave him alone. Oh, we got Patrick Walters coming up in the next segment. Great interview. Appreciate Patrick's angler and a friend. So hang on through that interview. It's a long one. And then I'll have just a few short minutes to wrap up the end of the show. So hang on through the break. More Woods and Water South Carolina on the other side. Yeah, I think that whole interview is on there. Paul, if you can find out where it where it lands, oh well. Maybe we'll do Patrick next week. <laughs> I think what happened is, is we put the whole thing in there, which is us talking beforehand and everything else. So we'll clean that. We'll clean that interview up this week. We'll play Patrick next week. How's that? That works because we're going to run out of time anyway. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay. Welcome to live radio, which means I have to get on the stick and find something to talk about here. Uh, whoa. Let me find my computer bag here a second. Um, yeah, I think what happened was, is we put that interview in there uncut and did not trim the edges. So apologize for that. If you were hoping to tune in today and listen to Patrick talk, we'll uh, we'll just roll that interview into next Saturday. And 
actually it'd probably work out better for exposure for him too. So, what am I going to talk about for the next 25 minutes? I don't know. I'll figure out something. What you got, Paul? Well, I was going to say uh, we can talk about uh, how spring is kicking in and so many opportunities that are out there oh, yeah. that a lot of people may not be thinking yeah, about. Well, I got plenty of stuff here. Let's see what Go we're with talking it. about. Um, it, okay, it is spring, and and I talked to DNR the other day. We're going to do a, a boating safety segment. They'll be offering some uh, Memorial Day weekend is usually the, the kickoff. For the boating season. Uh, I'll be at a wedding that day. <laughs> uh, my daughter's getting married on the 25th. So when, when as the boating season kicks off on the 25th, the DNR will be offering some boating checkpoints during the whole weekend at various lakes, ramps, across the state. But uh, there is some ramp etiquette. And, we, and, and if you talk to anybody for any length of time, whether you're a seasoned veteran of the of, of boating or if you're a newcomer or whatever, you've all experienced this. And, you know, if you're new, you probably don't know. I mean, when you see it happen, you probably don't realize what's happening. But boating ramp etiquette, it's, uh, it's something everyone that has a boat needs to know how to handle a ramp, whether it's busy, empty, morning, night. So let's, um, it's a story from Walker Smith from, 2017 um, that I've had that uh, I pull out every year and we talk about rampant, maybe not every year, maybe every other year. I'm trying to do things every year because it gets old. But uh, it starts out like this. If I were a betting man, I'd bet a bag of worms that you've uttered some not so pleasant words under your breath at the local boat ramp. <laughs> yeah. It seems that these ex- accesses are where common sense goes to die. It can be funny, but those chuckles quickly turn to frustration when you're rushing to catch a morning topwater bite with a line of slow-moving trucks of boat trailers in front of you. When I started dragging an old beat-up bass boat as a teenager, I made a lot of mistakes. I even fell neck deep into 40-degree water at my first-ever bass tournament while simultaneously swallowing half the lake. I looked like a wet ferret, so I'm not being cynical or preachy. I simply want to make sure everyone knows a few important unwritten rules of boat ramp etiquette. I wish I had read something like this in my younger days. So it's not, it's not, uh, slamming you if you've done this before. It's just saying, hey, look, these are some of the things that all of us need to work on. Move to the side if you're not ready. There are a lot of things to check and recheck before launching your boat. Most importantly, the plug. If your boat's got a plug, you need to check that plug twice. I've put a boat in before and come back and it's sitting on the ramp. <laughs> So check your plug. Waiting until you're in the middle of a long line at a busy boat ramp is not the time to perform these tasks. When you pull into a parking lot, move to the side and let others go ahead and dump their boats. Put your plug in, take your straps off, take your motor toter off, plug in your grass, put your lights in, whatever you got to do to get ready to go out on the water before clogging up the line. Not only does this drastically help the flow of traffic, but it also ensures that you're doing everything properly and safely because you're not being rushed. Just move to the side, sip your coffee, and take your time. Your fellow fishermen will thank you. Number two, turn off your headlights. Ever tried to back a boat trailer with someone's headlights in your mirrors? It's practically impossible. As soon as your truck goes in reverse, shut off your headlights so people back in their trailers and adjacent lanes will be able to see. This is a major holdup. I commonly see it. Most boat ramps across the country, and I've seen it. 
well, the elite stop at Hartwell, you know, guy of a side, I was back in, uh, Brandon Kyle's boat down for him. And the guy to my right, my guy to my left had his lights on and turned around to look in the rear view mirror, a side mirror to see the, the ramp stripe and got blinded. So it happens. You forget about it, but it's one of those things you do it once. You have to think about it. You do it twice. You got to think about it a little more. Third, fourth, fifth time, you don't even think about it anymore. Your lights go dim and help the guy out beside you. Number three, catch up after your truck is parked. I fish tournaments by myself most of the time, so my truck often sits on the ramp for a few minutes while I stock my boat. This isn't an ideal time for me to hang around and talk fishing with my buddies. My parked truck is slow in traffic, taking up an entire lane and probably ticking some people off. There's no time for chit-chat. Fishing is largely about fellowship and camaraderie, so there's nothing wrong with enjoying the time with your buddies. Just get your rig out of the way, and then you can talk to your heart's content. Number four, and I'm... I'm a bad one to talk, so that's one for me. Don't hog the ramp. A lot of marinas have multiple boat ramp lanes, but no concrete dividers. Essentially, they look like one really wide ramp. When the facility is busy, don't go down the very middle. That just clogs things up for everyone else in line. Dump your boat on the farther side of the ramp as possible so other folks can launch next to you. There's no reason one trailer needs to take up four or five lanes. And that's the truth. Number five, have your nav lights on when your boat touches the water. Of course, this is early morning, you know, or at night. Boat ramps, especially during a tournament, are extremely busy, and there are boats idling everywhere. If you launch your boat without the lights on, you're endangering those around you. You might be able to see them, but they can't see you. Six, only tie to other boats with permission. You know, bass boats, these rigs cost a lot of money. There's no sense in scratching someone's boat. might seem harmless, but just be respectful and politely ask permission before tying up someone else's boat. If there's no more dock space left, the guy worked hard to afford that boat. So be cognizant of his investment. I was brought up when I started boating and all that you asked a captain to step aboard his boat, even if he's expecting you. So the guy that owns the boat, he's the captain. That's his, that's his place. So you ask him everything is consideration. You ask the other guy. It's a good idea to keep a few cheap bumper buoys in your rod locker. These will ensure there's no damage to the fiberglass, aluminum, rub rails on either boat. And I got, I got to find that thing. Anthony Gagliardi's father-in-law bought him something that, uh, or his father bought him a little. It's a, it's aluminum. It's got a, a ring in the top, and it fits down between the slats on a boat ramp. So if there's not a cleat there, you can drop it down between the. The board's on a boat ramp, and it'll hold it. It's a pretty cool thing. I have to find that. Number seven, there's nothing wrong with using your trolling motor. It takes a lot of practice to learn how to precisely maneuver your boat via outboard at low speeds. If you're in a local derby with 150-plus boats out there, things can quickly turn into an impromptu game of bumper boats if you're not careful. If you're in a tight spot, there's nothing wrong or wimpy about standing up and deploying your trolling motor. It's better than scraping the bow of your boat across someone else's cowling. And that's one thing that... For I know the high schoolers are down there Hartwell now. You need to be able to run a trolling motor. Taylor was funny. She about to dump herself in the water the last time she was on one. And and I do the same thing because I I run so many different ones. Being a media guy, you get media boats and they'll have a four four tracks or an old tracks or an edge or you know just a a multitude of different trolling motors. You got to get used to them. They all handle differently. So know your trolling motor and use it. 
It's a good thing. If parking lot is empty, give everyone some space. If you sneak out for a few hours a weekday afternoon fishing, there are only a few trucks in the parking lot. Give the other guys a little breathing room. Don't park right next to them. When it's time to put his boat back in the trailer, he'll have to do some Austin Power-esque moves to free himself from the unnecessary bind you put him in. It's hard to back a trailer when you have six inches of wiggle room on one side of your rig. His truck doesn't need yours to keep it company. And that's just, you know, you got 40 parking spaces. Give him two or three around. It just makes it a whole lot easier for everybody involved. And that's just a little something for the boaters out there. I, I believe, and it's the more people I talk to, and we'll do this on boating safety when we have DNR on here. <clears throat> I really think there ought to be a mandatory class, boater safety, uh, where you learn, learn the rules of the road, where you learn stuff like this, and where you have to get, and there is a boating safety course out there. I'm just saying it, it ought to be mandatory, not voluntary. It is mandatory for under a certain age. And you really, I think you really ought to have a license. I mean, if you're going to drive a boat, some of them are capable 50, 60, 70 miles an hour, and there's no lanes in a lake. I mean, you've got navigation buoys right and left, green and red, to, to know where your channels are and stuff like that. But you got people cutting across the lake, going down the lake, quartering to you. you got skiers, you got wakeboarders, you got fishermen, you got the pontoon crowd. Everybody's got to work together, and, and I really think – and I've talked to a bunch of people who think, yeah, you ought to have a boating license, just like a car license. That's just my humble opinion. Anyway, that filled in a segment. <laughs> All right, hang on through the break. We will uh, be back with the last segment of Woods and Water, South Carolina. What in the world do all these recent tax law changes mean for you? How does it affect your retirement? Hi, I'm Chris Dixon with Oxford Advisory Group. And you can hear us discuss this and more every Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. right here on 94.5 WGTK, The Answer. That's the Reinventing Retirement Show at 2 p.m. on Saturdays and Sundays. If you want to learn more about how to reduce taxes before then, you can be one of our first 10 callers. That's 864-501-5600. 501-5600. Hey guys, it's here. It's getting warm and golf season is back. If you're looking for a new home course, do yourself a favor and check out the new Cherokee Valley Course and Club. They've got this beautiful par 72 track that's just a blast to play. And the view, you have to see it for yourself. When you tee off on that par 3 with the mountains in the background, it's really something else. And now is a great time to check it out. They have a limited number of memberships, so call up Lauren and set up a tour of the club. She'll give you a free round on the house. You'll be shown the resort-style pool, their incredible learning facility, the fitness and the spectacular destination restaurant that's in development. There's no obligation. Just go play 18 and enjoy the day. It's a no-brainer. There's great things happening at the new Cherokee Valley Chorus and Club. So go ahead, call now. 864-895-6758. That's 895-6758. Lauren will set you up with a tour and a free round in a spectacular setting. Everything you need to know is online at CherokeeValleyClub.com. Hey, it's Don at American Made Windows of the Upstate. Leaky rotting windows may seem like a minor problem, but over time it can cost you thousands in lost energy and home repairs. With our winter special, you can save up to $1,500 on a house full of new replacement windows. Don't suffer again this winter. Keep the cold air out and your heat in with new American Made Windows. 
Call now and save 334-6030 or online at AmericanMadeWindowsUpstate.com. And remember, the best windows are American-made. Welcome back to Woods and Water, South Carolina. I, I had this for, I don't know, last week or whatever and just kind of got pushed to the side. And it's nothing to do with the outdoors. But uh, it is, thanks to my dad, he, he keeps me, they don't have a computer. They don't have internet. So he keeps me hopping, asking me to look this up or look that up. And, and one of the things he has always kept track of is the Doodle Raiders. Uh, you know, the famous launching from the carrier Hornet attack in Japan uh, early on in 1942. Um, Doodle Raid. If you, if you don't know about it, if you haven't been taught it in school, look it up. But uh, the last Doolittle Raider, Dick Cole, died, and I think the day he dies, April the 9th. I'm, I'm not positive of that. This is from the Air Force Times. Um, the article is dated April 9th. I'm sure if I get into this article, I'll, I'll see it. But a legend passes. Dick Cole, last of the Doolittle Raiders, dies at 103. 103 years old. Retired Lieutenant Colonel Dick Cole, the last surviving member of the Doodle Raiders, Doodle Raiders who rallied the nation's spirit during the darkest days of World War II, has passed away. Tom Casey, president of the Doodle Tokyo Raiders Association, confirmed to Air Force Times that Cole died Tuesday morning in San Antonio, Texas. His daughter, Cindy Cole, and his son, Richard Cole, were by his side. So let's see. If... Um, Tuesday morning, April the 9th. That's it. Cole will be buried at Arlington National Cemetery, Casey said. Memorial services are also being scheduled at Joint Base San Antonio Randolph in Texas. Cole, who was then Lieutenant Colonel Jimmy Doolittle's co-pilot and the number one bomber during the daring 1942 raid to strike Japan, was 103. The Doolittle raid was the United States' first counterattack on Japanese mainland after Pearl Harbor. 80 U.S. Army Air Force Airmen and 16 modified B-25B Mitchell bombers launched from the aircraft carrier Hornet about 650 nautical miles east of Japan to strike Tokyo. While it only caused minor damage, the mission boosted morale on the U.S. home front a little more than four months after Pearl Harbor and sent a signal to the Japanese people not only that the U.S. was ready to fight back, but also that it could strike the Japanese mainland. Cole's influence is still very apparent in today's Air Force, and he remains a beloved figure among airmen. In 2016, he appeared on stage at the Air Force Association's Airspace Cyber Conference to announce that the service's next stealth bomber, the B-21, would be named the Raider. Herbert Field in Florida in 2017 renamed the building housing the 319th Special Operations Squadron, the Richard E. Cole Building. And when he turned 103 last September the 7th, the Air Force Chief of Staff, General David Goldfein, and his wife, Dawn, called him to wish him a happy birthday. And uh, there's a picture in, in the Air Force Times article. If you go to airforcetimes.com under news, your Air Force, you'll see the story about Dick Cole. Uh, he's, uh, he's behind in the right-hand seat of a B-25 bomber, which is what he flew. Cole was born and raised in Dayton, Ohio. In a 2016 interview with HistoryNet.com, Cole said he first became interested in flying as a kid when he would ride his bicycle to the Army Air Corps test base, McCook Field, and watch the pilots fly. He said he enlisted in the Army Air Corps in November 1940 because it was a good job, 
especially in the midst of the Great Depression, after finishing training, went to the 17th Bombardment Group in Pendleton, Oregon. If you didn't know this, this is another part South Carolina has played. He was transferred to Columbia, South Carolina in early 1942, where he saw a bulletin board notice seeking volunteers for a mission. He entered his entire group, put in their names. Everyone wanted to go to that mission, Cole said in a 17 Air Force interview. Cole, who was then 26 years old, trained at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida for the secret raid. We were confined to base in isolated barracks and told not to talk about anyone about our training, Cole said. We knew it would be dangerous, but that's all. The B-25 typically needed about 3,000 feet to take off, but they trained to get airborne in 500 feet. And when future Navy Admiral Henry Miller started teaching them how to take off from a carrier, they guessed they were headed to the Pacific to take the fight to Japan. Then Second Lieutenant Cole became Doolittle's co-pilot by chance when the pilot he had been training with fell ill. Doolittle's intended co-pilot also became un- unable to fly. The B-25s were stripped of all excess equipment, including their bomb sites and lower turrets, and loaded up with extra fuel tanks at double capacity to about 1,100 gallons. They left port from Alameda, California on April the 2nd. Two days later, they were told they were going to strike Tokyo. We were pretty excited, he said. But the Navy, the carrier ran into a Japanese picket ship, and William Bull Halsey decided to launch the mission earlier than planned. Conditions were rough. Water came over the bow, and the plane started to slip around the deck. But the wind about doubled the air carrier speed of 20 to 35 miles, which helped the planes get airborne. They reached Japan, Japan a little more than four hours flying time at an altitude averaging roughly 200 feet. And it goes on through, and uh, Doolittle's crew land, intended to land in Chuchow, China, fuel up, continue to western China, but they hit a snag. They ran into a severe rainstorm with lightning. Cole said the Chinese also heard their engines and thought they were Japanese, so they turned off the electric power to the lights. The crew had no choice but to fly until they ran out of gas and then bail out. <laughs> and in one of Cole's interviews, I read, it said, uh, someone asked him what was the single most memorable thing about the Doolittle Raid. He said, I remember my parachute opening. So, which would be a pretty good thing. Anyway, um, it goes on to talk about, you know, as the raid was a turning point in the war and all that. But I just thought it'd be kind of neat to share that the last of the Doodle Raiders is gone. Pretty cool stuff, man. And and what it took those guys to do that job. Uh, You look back at that generation, they truly were the, the greatest generation ever. Got a little fun thing here for you. And it's a, it's a, I shared it on Facebook and it's, I printed it out. It'll be hard for you to, to get it, but, but here you go. You're stranded on a deserted island. You can choose four of the following things. So get out a pen and paper right quick. You ready for this? Four things on a deserted island. Ready? A tarp, sunscreen, toilet paper, a pot, an iPod, hiking boots, a handsaw, flare gun, Inflatable raft, flashlight, insect repellent, a hammock, a compass, a mirror, <laughs> vitamins. I love this one. This is hard. Water purifier, fishing rod, rope, hunting rifle, five ounces of weed, <laughs> a first aid kit, a tent, knife, matches, and a volleyball. And of course, the volleyball has to be Wilson. <laughs> Definitely Wilson. Wilson, yes. 
That was a fun one. I uh, I trying I was going to try to get back to the post because everybody was posting up what they would have what they would take, and somebody actually picked the hunting rifle. Um, I don't think it comes with ammunition, folks. It's not listed here. <laughs> oh me! All right, got five minutes to go. I don't want to go there. I had this whole. I rode the tractor for a few hours this past week, and I came with this whole thing on influencers because social media is so big right now. Uh, but I don't want to go there because I don't have time to do it right. So I'm not. Let's see. Let's see if this thing will pull up right here. Rewilding the American child. I've got... I've got printed out here two articles about kids. I've got another one on my computer that's saved. And this one, Rewilding the American Child, Outside Online. And just, I don't think I've covered this one before. But it's not much. Just take a minute and listen to this. In which we unplug a generation of screen-addicted kids from their devices, give them freedom to roam unsupervised, Help them make friends with animals and show them that we, too, love to play outside. Our children are in crisis. Let's start there. Sure, adults have, since roughly forever, bemoaned kids these days as spoiled and incapable. Earlier this decade, the trendy parenting argument was that by giving our offspring too many things and not enough responsibility, we were creating a generation of entitled wimps. That's still the prevailing wisdom, but even as we try to land our parental helicopters, there's growing awareness that we face a far more ominous challenge. Today, America's kids are caught up in one of the largest mass migrations in human history, the movement indoors. Only recently have we, we begun to spend our lives pinned in my walls, staring at screens. Increasingly, increasingly, we don't touch, look at, or even speak to each other, connecting instead through apps. When we do get together, it's for a quick coffee date. At home, children see mom and dad thumbing away nonstop on their devices and follow suit. I am prime example number one. By just having this radio show, I am. I'm on it a lot. Material, content, you know, it's, it's part of life. For many of us who came of age before the smartphone, this transformation has been painful. You're exactly right. My brother and I were talking about we'd love to just pitch our phones in and never have to pick up another one. I'd really like to have my Motorola Razor back. If your childhood was full of hours spent wandering in the neighborhood with a pack of friends, your screen time composed of Saturday morning cartoons and after-school specials, the rise of the digitized, overscheduled indoor lifestyle can leave you deeply dispirited. For kids, the price is much higher. A steep rise in health problems, heightened social pressures, and a frightening set of new additions, addictions around technology. It's time to make childhood an adventure again. Kids deserve the chance to explore nature without an agenda or a chaperone to take risks and learn to get themselves out of trouble, to fall in love with nature so they become stewards of the earth. They need more than anything else to be allowed to follow the crooked, sometimes scary, and truly wild paths to adulthood that turn brave little kids into healthy grown-ups. And that is the truth. And parents, we are, you know, we allow it to happen. And I was thinking back while I was riding the tractor the other day. 
you know, I'm, I'm a prime example of being forced into it between my profession, this radio show. It's, it's just a part of life. The kids, they don't have a, the average kid in the neighborhood doesn't have the option. It's the only option because our, we as parents are so engrossed in it that we don't even give them the chance to get outside as we did when we were kids. Just something to watch out for. Not pounding on anybody because I'll tell you right now, I'm, I'm a number one example. But I do give my kids every chance to get outside. Even if it's just running around the backyard with a dog. Every little bit helps. All right. Next week, we will listen to what Patrick and I talked about this week. Uh, along with whatever else. So have a great week. Make time to get out there. Take the back roads when you can. The weather's wonderful. And don't forget the camera. Back here next week with more Woods and Water, South Carolina. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 